Welcome to the Decentralized Web. We cover the latest in decentralized and centralized web technologies through interviews with experts across technology and industry. We're your hosts, Jonathan and Justin. Thanks for joining us as we take a deep dive into what makes data decentralization and consent-based data sharing exciting, interesting, and fun. And we are joined here today by Cameron Buzarjimeri, lead system engineer at MITRE. Cameron, thank you very much for joining us today. Looking forward to the discussion. And if we could get started by hearing a bit about you, that'd be a great place to get going. Thanks a ton, Justin. Yeah, I my, my formal title is lead software systems engineer at MITRE. I think I got that right. Seems to change like every other week. But my actual job a lot of the times is um, I'm a privacy engineer and I'm a blockchain researcher who basically investigates a lot of decentralized technologies on the web. So, you know, pretty appropriate to the stuff your audience would be interested in, I think. Absolutely. On this podcast, we end up talking a lot about solving problems for a safer world, a better world, because we believe that decentralization is essentially the path that leads us to that promised land, so to speak. From your perspective, what do you think are the biggest challenges that really need to be addressed to get a better, safer world online in society? You're really baiting me with the first question, Justin. Yeah, uh, I think what Justin implied is MITRE's entire motto is solving problems for a safer world. Uh, MITRE, the company I work for. And I mean, that's a lot of not just what MITRE does, but a lot of companies and people who are investigating emerging technologies are trying to figure out how to solve this resiliency problem. I think we've seen a lot with ransomware and lots of cyber attacks that the internet itself actually has a resiliency problem that comes from centralization. And over time, the the internet itself has worked to be more decentralized, have lots of backups for DNSs, backups for how we do cloud storage and stuff. But over over that time, we basically had like just backed up centralized systems. We haven't really thought too much about decentralized systems. And so as new technologies have come out, like I know everyone's familiar with blockchain, but that's just one of a variety of distributed ledger technologies, which are themselves just one of a variety of other distributed decentralized technologies. People have been creating new technologies and paradigms that there's not just that they are redundant and able to make the internet more resilient. It's that they're helping us completely shift how we think about things as fundamental as data. It does feel like the height of irony that this infrastructure that's been a very successful, decentralized, fairly resilient, survivable infrastructure, like the bones of the internet, we cannot help as people but build on top of it and create little fiefdoms that are centralized uh, on this really great base mm-hmm. to, to work off of. Oh, yeah. Like, if, I mean... People don't really think about this, but like the internet is at its core, just wires and cable in the ground. And so there are actual physical choke points throughout the internet that certain either internet service providers or specific companies have either set themselves up to manage those choke points and by extension, get a lot of benefit from it or have allowed governments to basically be able to control how internet moves through geography. 
Mm-hmm. And what's really cool is like the centralized technologies, they come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. I know that some countries where they have more restrictive regimes, civil um, activists and hacktivists, if your listeners are familiar with that term, are developing applications that basically they just allow your phone to connect to Bluetooth from other phones. So you have an intranet or you have small mini networks that allow people to continue interacting in ways that subvert these monolithic top-down ways of controlling the internet. I think it would be interesting for people to hear a bit more because you did drop MITRE's tagline. And so I think there's the, the natural question then becomes, what is MITRE and how has it worked maybe historically, you know, and in, in present times to deliver on that promise of or that mission, creating kind of a better, safer world? So MITRE itself is its name is it's kind of an acronym. If I recall, the lore of our name is um, MIT Research and uh, Engineering or Research and Development. Basically, it started from MIT researchers who are helping basically the U.S. government create new technologies, fight wars. But over time, it's evolved into this powerhouse of research and development. So the current MITRE, it, it is a not-for-profit that runs seven federally funded research and development centers, FFRDCs. And they are the bones of like how government and how even commercial private academia are able to research some pretty crazy new technologies and see how they would work in the global scale. And like, this is not, this is not secret. This is stuff that if you go Google MITRE right now, you'll learn a lot of the stuff. And I encourage people to, if you can, the MITRE Knowledge Driven Enterprise is actually a open platform that MITRE engineers and employees actively write blog posts about their work, or we even record some audio interviews that we're hoping to put out in some sort of podcast to uh, share a bit about the kinds of decentralized and cyber and all sorts of crazy research going on at MITRE. So like my, the funny thing about MITRE is despite the fact that we work on some pretty cool, crazy stuff, we don't actually want to be too secretive about it. We want to get ideas out there to help the public and not just the American public, but governments and people around the world. So what you're saying is that there are no snipers outside my window making sure that we don't stray off on some secret topics. No, but there are some outside mine, so that's why I'm in the closet. Okay. I have positioned my labradoodle over by the window, and he's <laughs> good. All right. Just making sure that he's, that he's safe. <laughs> but it is really awesome, the role that, that MITRE has played, and actually has had a really active role in a lot of standards work, especially in the security and privacy arena. So it's mm-hmm. really no surprise that someone such as yourself, who's a privacy engineer, would find a home there. And also that through circumstance, we've connected and and talked about how decentralized technologies, decentralized standards can help solve some problems. And, you know, that's led us here today to this to this podcast. So again, thanks for sharing that. And thanks for being here. Of course, man. Any any opportunity to spread the gospel of good decentralization and privacy. So on that topic, how did you first discover decentralization? What was the first piece of technology or protocol or standard that really got you into this? Because you mentioned that at, at MITRE, you're doing a lot of blockchain work. You know, maybe it was blockchain, maybe it was something beforehand. But what 
what was it that really got you um, focusing in a decentralized arena? I think this is going to sound like a very silly story. Actually, when I was in college forever ago, back when cryptocurrencies first started existing, like Bitcoin, I thought they were very interesting, not really from a currency aspect, because like back then the, the currencies had like no real value. It was more from um like, what are they doing? How are they enabling people around the world to interact and do this thing in a way that the system itself is self-regulating to a degree. Mm -hmm. And admittedly, I'm a little disappointed now that there's so much hype around it, but I was like very fascinated with Dogecoin and I would mine Dogecoin and I communicate in Dogecoin forums. And it was an entryway <laughs> for me to get interested into decentralized technologies. And like, if anyone knows about Dogecoin, it's like wacky history. Like what's not to love? It's weird. It's got a fun community. I mean, it's a meme. It's a meme coin yeah. that everyone knows about now. It's insane to hear about it in the news, knowing that I used to see people pay for random acts of pizza with it forever ago. Billions of dollars. Yeah. Oh my God. The market cap. I don't even want to think about it. Yeah. Just someone go look up the market cap of um, Dogecoin right now and be shocked that this meme took off like this. But but that was it. That was just the first time that maybe I'd interacted with decentralized technologies before, but that was the first time like I was really paying attention. And then during my master's, and then a little less during my first job, my like first job after my master's, but especially since I came to MITRE, where they have opportunities, MITRE has something called the MITRE Innovation Program, where they allow you to basically ask research questions. And those research questions are like, if they think they're good enough to fund, you get to spend time to help help not just MITRE, but uh, it sponsors as well understand how these things fit into their own ecosystems. And so when I was at MITRE, I was like, I already know about blockchain and other decentralized technologies, but what would it really be like to see those played out to help government or help citizens? What turned into like me learning on my own turned into an opportunity for me to really get to work with it and research it and understand it. Fantastic. By the way, for those that are curious, two hours ago, there was a news headline that Dogecoin's market cap had surged 25% to $54 billion. All sourced from a dank meme, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I thought it was, isn't it because Coinbase just started listing them on their pro platform? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's, we live in strange times. <laughs> Extremely strange times. Since MITRE has a role in strategic advisement for government, how do you think that centralization is presenting challenges for governments? Because I, I think that sometimes people look at the government as just this thing, but in reality... It's it's like its own organism in and of itself and has all kinds of unique challenges, but also, you know, a lot of the same challenges and and I think opportunities that non-governmental organizations could have when when you look at decentralization and centralization. But what kind of problems would you say that centralization is presenting to government today? What's funny about this question is like I feel like a lot of people expect it to be a technology question, but it's actually more of a history question. If you think about I I mean, the United States government is relatively young compared to other countries, but it's still very old. I mean, I think sometime in the next 50 years, we're coming up on 300 years as a country. And over that time, we've had a system of government that's needed a way to get everything from a decennial census to being able to collect taxes and whatever thing we've layered on top of it over its existence. And for the longest time, we had no decentralized way to properly manage that collection and work. It always had to be the government needs to do a project and we're going to figure out a way to do it. So it's always coming from the top down. And that that has 
built that ethos of decentralization that also goes into all the laws that govern it. If you think of it, the first real privacy law in the United States was the Privacy Act of, I, please correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it's 1974. Just to give you a sense of like 200 years of no explicit privacy anything. And then that happened because we needed controls on how we centrally collected and managed data about citizens. And over time, those laws have evolved to account for electronic health records, other forms of PII that even the founding fathers and people in the 1970s couldn't have even imagined would exist now. Mm. And as a result, not just the laws, but the thinking has gone a lot towards centralization. It's a question of if I build this database, if I built this system, how do I ensure that I'm protecting it or that I can talk to these other systems when over time we've gotten to a point where like the United States is a huge diverse place. The 13 original colonies that make up why we have our capital where it is are not representative of everything that came after. And so obviously we need some updates. And as a result, it's, I think a lot of then this isn't just a government thing. I think like people in general are starting to realize like maybe centralization isn't working as much as we thought it would. Yeah. So how do you think that decentralized technologies can address that, you know, maybe be part of the solution? I think one thing that decentralized technologies do incredibly well, especially when they're implemented well, is scalability. Like a good decentralized technology will allow you to be able to deploy nodes anywhere and have the network itself scale and manage those information and resources without needing to necessarily rely on one top down system or service. Or in this case, you think of it like a bottleneck or a choke point. I mean, a lot of it comes back to the fact that a government allows for governance. So you can't expect to implement decentralized technologies and just be like, cool, we're done. No one needs to worry about governing or managing this thing. That's a big part of why those standards come into play is like people need to figure out how these systems talk to each other. But at the end of the day, decentralized technologies are powerful because depending on your problem or use case or whatever, they allow you to effectively manage resources, whether they be how systems interact, how different organizations interact, or how people interact across virtual distances now. What we see pretty often in most large organizations, I think the the largest employer in the world is the federal government, I believe, at 3.2 million people, approximately. So what we see in the private sector or with other government organizations in uh, Europe and, and elsewhere is that they're large organizations that inside of themselves have a lot of compartmentalization, data silos, but they end up with constituents that have to interact with all of these silos. And decentralization can even be used as a tool to solve an integration problem, which is it's really hard to make these different silos talk directly to each other or exchange information, which makes the constituents suffer because they're pretty much feel like they're dealing with one entity with, say, the government, but they're talking to different divisions and no one knows what's going on with the other ones. And people feel like you guys are supposed to know everything because you're the government <laughs> and you don't know who I talked to yesterday about this, you know, related problem. And I think 
from a government standpoint, this would apply to citizens who maybe you know are working with different departments, but also probably for employees too, employees, members of the military. And I have to imagine that they all run into this issue where they're one individual, so they feel like they should have one identity that's recognized digitally when they interact with these different services. But also they, because they're one individual, they have one representative data set shouldn't the government, in quotes, have visibility to that? Should it be so siloed? And can decentralized technologies actually help with that very practical kind of integration problem? It's almost like you tailor-made this question just for me. Yes, uh, this has been a huge motivator for how I've looked at a lot of my research since starting at MITRE, but since being interested in decentralized technologies is if we get to the point where we can give the individual control or understanding or just better influence over their own data, there's no logical reason we can't do all the things that you're talking about. Anyone who's been a citizen of a country, but especially I feel like in the United States, knows how weird it is knowing that like the federal government basically knows what your taxes are. So why do I need to go through all these tertiary services to file my taxes? But then I grew up in Florida, or even when I was working, I lived in Florida. And so when hurricanes come through, and I remember the first time I had to request FEMA assistance, I was thinking to myself, this is so weird. They should just know who I am. I pay taxes. Why don't they know what my information is? Like they know I live here and I have to go through a completely different system. I have to reapprove who I am through a bunch of questions that if you know the answer to these questions, how do you not know that I am me without me having to go like there's this vetting and all these pieces that honestly, we're I feel like and this is a personal take at a transition point. But we're realizing we have all this data and resources, but for some reason, we haven't been using them in maybe as smart of a way. And there's not really anyone to blame for this. It's just a evolution of when technology can finally get good enough to allow for this transition or this adoption. That's when you start seeing new ideas and new abilities to move towards. Can we create a digital identity for citizens? Can we create a better way for citizens to not only manage their data, but also have an understanding of what data the government already has and maybe make it easier for the government to manage that data and get that data. And I know there are laws that have to do with what's called computer matching, which is basically when you allow two databases to talk to each other from different organizations or even within the same organization that can limit the government's ability to know that information. And often those laws are created with very well intention of I don't want someone to be able to come in and use this database and misuse the data in it to negatively impact citizens. And that is just a function of having a central internet where you have these central silos. But I think something that lawmakers are going to have to wrestle with soon is as decentralized technologies continue to grow in interest and applicability, they're going to have to completely rethink how those laws apply to these things because now you're not looking at a single central system managing the data. Now you're not looking at computer matching between two siloed systems. Now you're looking at maybe each individual has their own little silo of their data and the government is just going to be the one requesting that access so that the citizen, every time new data is made about them, every time they make new data about themselves, they have control over it. They know where it is and what it is, and they don't have to worry about teaching the government who they are every time they go to interact with them. So I think a lot of this is very tightly associated with identity and the ability to have a digital identity that can be used as the point at which information you know, can be organized, that, that you can control and, and access can be granted. What does the identity? 
identity system of the future look like for government? Because really, the government has actually pioneered generally the identification system that we use today, driver's licenses, federal identity. And it really is in the best position probably to issue digital identity credentials, just given its current role and its current infrastructure. Is that where it's headed? So yeah, if we want to think about identity, it's always been difficult to identify all the people in a country. I mean, if you go back, we used to only have names. We used to have a general idea. Basically, your identity was a sum of checking with everyone who knew you that you were you. And when Social Security was becoming a thing in the United States, we had to figure out how does the government uniquely identify everyone? And that created probably the first real standard for identifying people in the United States that we're all familiar with, which is Social Security. But the problem was, as other agencies wanted to do this themselves, they basically were just like, we'll just reuse Social Security numbers. If it's uniquely identifying people, that's great. We'll just keep using that. The problem with that is you rely so much on that one identifier that if something happens to it, if the wrong people get their hands on it, it can lead to identity fraud. It can lead to just general confusion if people are mislabeled in a system by having, let's say, your social security numbers just off by one from another person. There are lots of different ways where you have this number that you might not even realize you have to change. Unfortunately, social security numbers can be changed, but the problem is they're very passive credentials. And then like with what you mentioned with driver's licenses, driver's licenses are, if you, you might want to think of it as a more federated approach of we are a United States where each state was trying to figure out how it was going to identify people within its jurisdiction. And so driver's licenses help with that because obviously driving laws are actually not the same between states. As the country continues to grow, as we continue to need new ways to identify people, we've realized that we can't use this passive credential, especially because not everyone in the United States is held to the same standard when creating that credential. This has led to things like the Real ID Act, where everyone needs to get a driver's license with, I think it has a little star on it or something, that proves that like this is a nationally recognized, I can go prove to a stringent level at which the government recognizes that I am who I say I am. And what we're seeing slowly, um, there are projects like login.gov, ID.me, these tools that are being used by the government to help identify people. And like, this is not secret. If you are in the military, you probably used ID.me. They're OAuth-based tools for proving you are who you say you are. But what's really amazing about them is, and going back to your point about standards, they're what's called NIST LOA3 compliant, Level of Assurance 3 compliant, which means that the assurance of the level of identification is up to a level that if I was interacting with the government digitally and I said, I am Cameron, I provide this credential, they will believe I am Cameron because every step leading up to me proving that identity is completely adequate for the government. And this is more or less how driver's licenses and social security numbers work. But there's no interrogation component to how I interact with that. And I realize that probably sounds more hostile than I meant it to. But when we think of a lot of identifiers, they're very passive in that I would show you my driver's license. And most of the time, people won't think twice as long as I look enough like the person on the card. And a lot of times there are people who they go through drastic life changes and they look nothing like they look on their card. And so they're either like now they're a false negative or a false positive for their identity. Whereas when you're interacting in this new digital ID, 
there is that interrogation component, but it's a little more standardized. Now we've gone from the first part, which is the identification. Now the second part of assurance is authorization. How do we prove that this person is authorized to even use this credential? And this is where you might start seeing things like multi-factor authentication. If you think of how you're using your password, so it's one thing to show your username, but the password is a secret that you know that helps you get in. And while those are weak, by combining multiple factors, you can build a strong assurance of this person's identity. And as government has worked to build this assurance into identity, they slowly realized we can add other things to this identity that can just follow this person around. Like, I don't need to know static things about them, like their legal name or their date of birth or things like that. We can associate these things with an ID. And as long as when those changes are made, they're updated adequately, every single time I interact with this person, I can basically just know this stuff about them. How does something as massive as the U.S. government adopt disruptive technologies like decentralization. How does it actually happen? Because I feel that MITRE is an organization that probably plays a role in those kinds of scenarios. Uh, I'm sure has historically and, and will continue to, but what does it actually look like? Does it take a decade? Does it take uh, certain kinds of, of lobbying? Does it become legislative? You know, how do we go from where we are today to uh, you know, the, the government saying, here's your digital identity. And also you can map all of the data that, that we have of yours to that digital identity, access it across divisions and really use it. Obviously, this is a huge question. It's very multi-pronged in that, yes, MITRE is a organization that's basically dedicated to helping government adopt all sorts of new technologies for all sorts of new use cases. And what I think a lot of people will be surprised to hear is every time I've interacted with anyone from government, they're adamant about how do we make life easier for not just the department, like for the citizens. Like we know people have to interact with the government and we want people to like the government. It's like people don't always think of the government like this, but it is, they are very focused on customer service. They're very focused on making sure that new technologies are adopted that citizens are not burdened more than they need to to receive the service they want. There's literally the Paperwork Reduction Act is an entire act by the government saying, listen, we're doing such a bad job at managing how we collect information that we're literally committing to doing a better job in an act. And I can't speak to politicians. I can't speak to what anyone's agenda is. It's always painful to think about the fact that a lot of government is top down. Like you people are used to thinking, OK, as long as this person in Senate can get this bill through, these changes will happen. Or as long as this executive order happens, these changes will happen. But every agency is to the best of their ability and to the best of their leadership committed to trying to make their entire organization better for the, the people who interact with it. And it's a real hustle for them. But like I alluded to before, that's not just something that they can always do themselves because they might be dependent on other agencies or organizations. And they still have to contend with the fact that if we go to decentralized technologies, we're fundamentally changing the paradigm that lots of laws that regulate how the government uses technology and uses data are written. They're completely based around if I create a system where I store people's data, I have to create a system of record notice. I have to provide appropriate notice, get informed consent. I have to have a retention period for how long I can hold that data. I can do all the stuff for that system. But if we go to a decentralized place where everyone's their own system holding their own data for themselves, those 
laws suddenly don't make any sense. And the government at some point will have to wrestle with, if we create that system, what will it look like? And that that itself can lead to hesitation. But what's interesting is that doesn't stop them. The government is very focused to the extent it can be on adopting new technologies, finding ways to make their life and the lives of the people who interact with them easier. And what's interesting is, like you pointed out, the U.S. government isn't a monolith. It is actually made up of like all these different agencies and organizations are each trying their best to do something that will stick and find ways of working with other agencies in a way that will stick. And funny enough, I think decentralized technologies are huge for them because they allow them to test things within their organization that can scale or at least be translated to other organizations. Do laws need to be passed to allow decentralized technologies to be used by the government in the U.S.? I I realize that you know, this isn't necessarily your, your primary, you know, area of expertise, but, but generally, are, are you aware of, of certain laws that would be considered kind of big sticking points before decentralized protocols or standards could be used widely? This is a bit of a loaded question in that I bet there are even laws I don't know about that will affect this conversation. And I feel like I know a lot about a lot of the laws. What I can say is, yes, absolutely, laws will need to change, maybe not to start, but to help this proliferate. I know there are agencies who are pursuing decentralized technologies. And no, not for cryptocurrency, but for how we manage citizen data, how we manage um, organizational data, how we manage organizational assets. But there are lots of places where the government doesn't need to wait for new laws to be able to use these technologies, but to see them proliferate, to see them be something that every citizen is interacting with in their pocket uh, every time they go to online to a government website, wherever, that will take laws that help rethink how we've understood and managed data collection and data use across government. Excellent. So the last big question, if you could look 10 years into the future in your crystal ball, what impact do you believe that decentralized technologies will have for us as citizens, for organizations, for governments, assuming that you know, we, we actually do see that proliferation, that we do see laws that support the proliferation get enacted, but we've actually enabled this technology. We've taken down the barriers and we have seen the adoption. Then what? You know, what are... What are the things that still need to be solved or what new problems might arise out of that? I think the most fundamental thing I would like to see different, I don't know if it's a 10 years from now thing, but what I want is my kids and maybe your kids, whoever's kids, when they go to do the things we used to do that used to take hours of paperwork and time will be one click for them. They basically go to, I have to pay my taxes. I'll log into an IRS website or maybe TurboTax will still have some sort of web portal. Who knows? But you'll basically log in and provide your identity. And that's it. You just, they will show you your tax information and you can hit sure. And you will just file your taxes with one click. You won't have to throw in a bunch of information every time. Or, and honestly, this is my most favorite outcome would be having to help people who are the most disadvantaged by this process. Because people don't actually think about how much of a privilege it is to be able to have the time and have the resources to get all the information you need, provide them, and have the time to wait for those results to come back to you. And this is a problem government knows and is actively trying to solve. And so if you're a disabled veteran, if you're a person who is in a disadvantaged community or you literally just don't have the time to fill out all this paperwork, being able to go and interact with the government that knows who you are, 
knows what you need and can do it for you, can get you to the resources and access you need in as few steps and clicks as possible. I think that will be the greatest outcome and ideally where all this is heading. Now, by that time, will a new technology come along that somehow complicates this even further? Or will there be new problems? Maybe. I can't say that for sure. Unfortunately, my crystal ball isn't working right now. <laughs> but what I can definitely say is there's no shortage of people who are trying really hard to make that one-click future come true, where decentralized technologies and all the different tools and crazy stuff that we're seeing take up the news right now are going to basically be commonplace for us, and ideally in a way that helps even the most disadvantaged of all of us. And so is it fair to say without divulging any state secrets that you and and your team at, at MITRE are working towards that end so that we can realize these benefits for, for all of us? I can say with absolute certainty, there's no shortage of projects and people focused on getting as close to that one-click feature I just described. Well, that's really exciting because if anybody is going to help make it a reality, it's probably going to be organizations like MITRE and teams like yours. So thank you for doing that on our behalf. And I think beyond U.S. population, a lot of the work that that you guys tend to do uh, ends up going into the public domain and being used globally in a lot of cases. So I think we all have a lot to look forward to. No pressure, <laughs> but certainly it'll be good when, when we get there. Cameron, thank you so much for the time today. It's been really awesome talking to you. We'll look forward to having you back again. Is there a place if people want to learn more about the work that you're doing, they can go and, and look that up? Yeah. So if you're curious about me in particular, you can find me on social media at Wildcard Cameron, all one word. And if you're interested in the wide array of stuff MITRE is doing, obviously the easiest thing would be to Google MITRE. But in terms of the actual engineers that MITRE are getting to talk about their projects and share what those discussions and journeys are like. MITRE actually has something called the Knowledge Driven Enterprise or KDE, where we periodically publish not just articles, but also audio interviews for anyone who's interested in learning more about projects that have to do with resiliency, decentralization, and just helping people who people don't even think the government is usually interested in helping with. So thank you so much. Fantastic. Thank you again so much for your time, Cameron. Encourage everybody to go and look up that information and we'll have you back again soon, hopefully. Thanks so much, Justin. It's always a pleasure getting to talk to you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Decentralized Web. If you enjoyed it, remember to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow us across social media to keep up with the latest in decentralized data and consent-based data sharing. <laughs>